yet again Israel is under attack. Rather than summon the most warlike leader from the most powerful tribe, God appears to use the skirmish as an opportunity to demonstrate his own power rather than that of his people. Throughout the settlement of Canaan, Israel's victories were credited to God's benign and miraculous intervention, and this battle is no different. One thing is certain, with his dramatically whittled down army, Gideon is never going to win by force of numbers. His attack is one of the most unorthodox that has ever been written down. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 58, Carnage in the Tower. It's battle after battle here in the book of Judges, arguably the Bible's most adrenaline-packed book, and it's not surprising that several of its heroes are household names. Welcome back if you're a regular, and thanks for making this podcast such a success. Together, we're travelling through the Bible one 20-minute chunk at a time, hopefully in a way that makes such an enormous book a little bit more manageable. If you're new, you'll notice that I've left the religion out, so you won't be told what to think. You may be told what the book's writers want you to think, which is completely different. The Bible does have an agenda to demonstrate to readers that it is the word of God, and as such, it lays out the rules for living while showing examples of the godly and ungodly who thrive or fail according to whether or not they stick to these rules. Holy Bible, on the other hand, simply tells the story from A to Z, treating the book as, well, a book, while also pointing out which bits get Christians excited and which ones make atheists roll their eyes. That said, let's get back to Gideon, whose army is about to go into battle against an opposition force which absolutely dwarfs it. Gideon's strategy is unusual to say the least. He divides the army into three divisions and provides each of his men with a trumpet and a clay jar with a lit brazier in it. The soldiers are to surround the Midianite camp, then, on his command, smash their jars, sound their trumpets, wave their torches and yell that they are doing this for God and Gideon. These shock and awe tactics have a catastrophic effect on the vast Midianite army whose soldiers begin fighting each other in confusion before running like scared children from Gideon and his heroic compadres. It is then that the rear guard from Naphtali, Asher and Manasseh pursue the fleeing Midianites. Messengers are sent throughout the hill country of Ephraim to make sure that troops reach the ford at Beth Barra before the Midianites can cross back over the River Jordan to safety. It's a complete rout. Two Midianite kings are killed and their decapitated heads brought to Gideon, who, through his faith in God, has pulled off one of the most remarkable military victories in the Bible. Incredibly, with a meagre fighting force of just 300 men, Gideon has repelled an invasion by the Midianite army. The enemy is in disarray, and as their soldiers flee back across the border, Israel gives chase. Exhausted and in need of food, Gideon assumes that he can call on the Israelites living in the borderlands for their help. He couldn't be more wrong, and the leaders of two towns who fail to offer support to their own people in their hour of need 
are about to find out the hard way what the consequences of their inaction might be. Not everyone is overjoyed at Gideon's exploits. Ephraim's nose is clearly put out and its leaders want to know why they were relegated to the clean-up operation rather than being allowed to take part in the battle. Gideon employs diplomacy, reassuring Ephraim that it wound up with the heads of two kings, considerably more than his own tribe managed. What he doesn't say is that Ephraim was in a far better position to neutralise the Midianite threat than Manasseh, but didn't, so they should be glad that they have anything to shout about. Evidently satisfied with Gideon's flattery, good relations resume. While Midian's other kings are still alive, they pose a threat and Gideon knows that he has to neutralise them before the battle is finally over. As he and his men chase the enemy out of Israel and back across the river, they call upon the Transjordanian town of Sukkoth in the tribal territory of Gad to help replenish their supplies. Exhausted from fighting, Gideon asks for food to help restore his soldiers' energy, but, possibly uncertain whether or not the danger has passed, Sukkoth's leaders refuse any help until they see the cold, dead hands of the Midianite kings, Zela and Zelmunna. Angry at this complete lack of cooperation, Gideon promises to tear his fellow Israelites' flesh with briars and thorns when God delivers the two kings into his hands. The first suggestion of infighting since the conquest. Trouble continues when the leaders of nearby Peniel also refuse to help. Here, Gideon promises to tear down the city's fortifications when he returns after his victory. It's uncertain why no help is forthcoming from Sukkoth or Peniel, but these towns' proximity to Midianite territory makes them more exposed than their cousins across the river, and perhaps they fear reprisals if they are seen to be too helpful. Despite running on empty, Gideon's modest army continues into the Transjordanian desert, where it ambushes an unsuspecting Midianite force of 15,000 troops, all that is left of an initial army of 135,000. Both Zella and Zalmunna flee, but are hunted down and captured. Now it is time for Gideon to pay back the two Israelite towns, which failed to help him. Gideon returns to Sukkoth, captures a local man and interrogates him until he has the names of all the officials who run the city. Once the great and good are gathered, Gideon presents them with the Midianite kings. He then honours his promise by whipping them with briars and thorns. Rather than simply inflict painful welts, the word the Bible uses is threshing. This flaying of the skin is such a brutal torture that it often results in death. The book confirms that this is an execution rather than a punishment when it tells readers that a large tower in Peniel is pulled down and all the men of the town are killed. Gideon then draws the king's attention to an earlier battle at Mount Tabor, asking what kind of men they killed here. Bible experts are unsure which skirmish Gideon is thinking of. The only battle that takes place at Mount Tabor is against Sisera's army in the time of Deborah, and no Israelite losses are recorded in the Bible. Perhaps Gideon is referring to a separate attack that isn't recorded in the Bible, but which affected his family. The two kings tell him that the men they killed were regal like him and carried themselves like princes. 
These were Gideon's brothers. Now that he knows that Zela and Zalmunna failed to show any mercy to his family, he orders his young son to kill them. Timid like his father once was, the boy is too afraid to follow through, and so Gideon, now a bona fide Israelite warrior and judge, cuts them down before removing their treasures from their camels. After such an emphatic victory, the Israelites naturally want Gideon to be their king, but he reminds them that God is the only leader that Israel needs. However, he does have one request. The Midianites are known for their gold earrings, and he wants one earring from each of his soldiers from their share of the plunder. The men willingly contribute, spreading out a garment and each throwing an earring into it. At the end of the collection, they have amassed 42 and a half pounds of gold, which doesn't include all the other gold ornamentation and purple robes scavenged from the kings or the chains from their camels' necks. Gideon has the treasure sewn into a tunic known as an ephod, which he displays in his hometown. Despite knowing that doing so is against the rules, Israel can't help worshipping the ephod like a god a move which troubles Gideon and his family. This is probably exacerbated by the knowledge that fashioning the ephod runs against Israel's laws, which state that all spoils from battle should be brought to the temple treasury. Gideon remains a calming presence over Israel for the next 40 years, and during this time the country remains free from invasion. Incredibly, he has 70 sons with his many wives, as well as a concubine who lives in nearby Shechem, who also bears him a son. It seems that Gideon is the only man able to keep the lid on Israel's flirtation with pagan deities, and, once he is dead, it is open season. As soon as he dies, Gideon's people set up an altar to Baal and fail to acknowledge God whatsoever, despite being miraculously rescued from the Midianite threat just a generation earlier. Worse still, they forget any loyalty to Gideon's family. His heroic efforts to help them keep their independence appear to be quickly forgotten. Gideon may have many offspring, but the son born to his concubine decides that the town of Shechem would be better under the rule of one brother rather than all 71. Gideon's rogue child is called Abimelech, and he challenges his half-brothers to carry out a poll in Shechem to decide whether the town would be better ruled by a single leader, the Bible's first election. The brothers canvass local opinion, and the consensus is that most people believe that Abimelech would make a great ruler. Unlike Gideon's other sons, his mother is a pagan Canaanite like many of Shechem's citizens, and so perhaps the locals feel a family connection to him. Everyone in the town gives their newly appointed leader 70 shekels of silver from the treasury of Baal's temple, around one and three quarter pounds each. It shows how far the city has slipped since Joshua's time. Shechem was dedicated as a city for the Levites and was also a city of refuge, and with Jacob's well and Joseph's tomb nearby, it was considered one of Israel's holiest places. It is now that Abimelech shows his true colours and reveals himself as a tyrannical megalomaniac. He uses the silver to hire thugs to slaughter Gideon's 70 other sons in a single mass execution. Only the youngest brother, Jotham, escapes by hiding. 
Shockingly, after such a callous and violent act, the people of Shechem reward Abimelech by crowning him their king, the first monarch to rule in the new Israel. When he realises what has happened, Jotham climbs to the top of nearby Mount Gerizim, the sacred mountain where Joshua once blessed the people of Israel, where he shouts down at the population of Shechem. He tells them the story of some trees who decide to make the olive tree their king. The olive tree doesn't want to give up its valuable oil in order to rule, and so declines. They ask the fig tree, but it doesn't want to give up its fruit, nor does the vine want to give up its wine. Finally, only the thornbush, an otherwise useless tree, is willing to take up the mantle of king, on one proviso. The other trees must either gather under its shade, or be consumed by its fire. Jotham then explains the story. The people are acting disrespectfully by appointing Abimelech king, he says. They are being disloyal to the memory of his father Gideon, especially given his heroics against the Midianites. Jotham asks them if they have acted honourably in appointing Abimelech king, given that he is effectively the son of his father's slave. If they have not, he warns them, both they and Abimelech will be destroyed. The suggestion is that Abimelech is the thorn tree, and Jotham throws down a curse that he will burn Shechem, and that Shechem will burn him back in retaliation. His message delivered, and fearing reprisals from his half-brother, Jotham turns on his heels and runs. Within just three years, the honeymoon between Shechem and Abimelech is over. The book of Judges describes how God stirs up such ill feeling between Abimelech and his subjects in Shechem that rebellion begins to stir. The reason given is that God sees the extrajudicial murder of Gideon's sons as unfinished business. Opponents of Abimelech position themselves on hilltops and attack passers-by travelling to and from the city. It seems indiscriminate, but by making the roads to Shechem unsafe, the success of the city is undermined, which indirectly harms its new king. The book then introduces readers to Gaal, a man who relocates to the area with his family and who wins the confidence of many of Shechem's people. At a local pagan festival, Gaal overhears the locals moaning about Abimelech. Gaal asks what credentials Abimelech has to be king and suggests the locals should serve the descendants of Hamor, the original Canaanite who sold the land to Jacob. Readers aren't told whether Gaal is a descendant of Hamor, but he claims that he has what it takes to give Abimelech a run for his money. The city's governor gets wind of Gaal's plans and informs Abimelech that he has a potential rival before suggesting a plan of action. That night, Abimelech and his men are to lie in wait in the fields around Shechem. At sunrise, they should march against their own city. Gaal watches the early morning manoeuvres from the city gates and can clearly see people moving down the mountain slopes towards him. Shechem's governor stands by his side, assuring him that all he can see are shadows. When it becomes clear that soldiers are fast approaching the city, the governor asks Gaal where his big talk is now and suggests he put his money where his mouth is and go out and fight Abimelech's army. To his credit, Gaal does lead the rest of Shechem in a counter-attack, but is forced back and ultimately flees. Victorious but angry, Abimelech holds up in a nearby town to plan revenge on his disloyal citizens. 
The next day, he lies in wait for them to leave the city to work in the fields, before ambushing them. It's not exactly a fair fight. Abimelech has three divisions of warriors, while the men and women of Shechem have only farm tools. It's a total rout. The entire population of Shechem is killed, and its king then destroys their city and pours salt on its ruins, condemning Shechem to permanent barrenness. After Abimelech's onslaught, only one building remains relatively safe, and the remainder of Shechem's population holds up inside, hoping to withstand the attack. In Old Testament times, there are few strong places to hide, and with the rest of their fellow citizens dead, the thousand or so people who have holed themselves up in the fortified tower of Shechem flee to its stronghold, where a pagan temple is located. The irony of Israelites fleeing to a temple dedicated to a Canaanite god in the hope of being rescued is not lost on the writer of the book of Judges. The temple in the tower may be a structurally secure hiding place, but the suggestion is that protection comes from having a right relationship with God, not from cowering behind a thick stone wall. Abimelech's blood is up and he heads to the wooded slopes of a nearby mountain with his axe. Here he cuts as many branches as he can carry on his shoulder and orders his men to do the same. They pile the wood against the walls of the stronghold and torch it, killing everyone inside. Drunk with success, Abimelech moves on to the nearby town of Thebes, which he besieges and successfully overruns. Many of the population have also sought refuge in a tower and have climbed onto its roof. As Abimelech is about to set it on fire, a woman high above him drops a millstone on his head, crushing him. Weighing anything from 12 to 15 pounds, the smaller upper stone that is placed on a larger millstone is a useful projectile during a siege, and not wanting the humiliation of being killed by a woman, the mortally wounded king asks a servant to run him through with his sword. Jotham's curse that Shechem and Abimelech will be destroyed has finally come true. With no leader and no one to fight, those Israelites who have gathered under Abimelech disperse and Israel remains at peace for almost half a century. After almost 50 years of peace, Israel's people inevitably fall back into their old ways until another unorthodox judge steps forward to lead them out of harm's way. Now that the threat from Abimelech is past, Israel is led by a man named Tola. He is from the tribal region of Issachar, but is living in Ephraim, suggesting that there is a certain amount of free movement among the tribes. Tola is described as saving Israel, though from what readers are not told. He is succeeded by Jair, a man from the Transjordanian region of Gilead, who is credited with 30 sons who ride 30 donkeys and rule 30 towns. Again, no record remains of Jair's heroics, but between them, Tola and Jair oversee a 45-year period of peace. After this, the Israelites return to their old tricks and throw their hat in with any Canaanite religion that comes their way. According to the book of Judges, the result is fury from God, which takes the form of military defeats east of the river as the tribes here are crushed by Ammonite and Philistine armies. These invaders take the fight across the Jordan and attack the western heartland of Judah, Benjamin and Ephraim. Only now does the national distress level rise high enough for Israel to admit that worshipping pagan gods is unwise and they cry out to God for help. 
According to the book of Judges, God reminds his people that he saved them from their Canaanite enemies before, yet they have still rebelled against him. As a result, he can't help them. Through what channel he speaks to the nation, readers are not told. This is an age before there are any prophets, and no judge is named as an intermediary tasked with passing on messages from the Almighty. God's advice is for his people to approach their other gods to see if any of them can help. The Israelites do seem genuinely repentant this time and even destroy their idols, an act which appears to soften God and bring him back on Israel's side. The book describes how God could bear Israel's misery no longer, a heartfelt description that pictures God as the parent of a rebellious and difficult child, but who he loves unconditionally. When the Ammonite army marches in and sets up camp in Gilead in East Manasseh, an Israelite force gathers and Gilead's leaders announce that anyone who commands the attack against Ammon can rule over them. The man who steps up is about as much of an outsider as it is possible to be in the ancient Near East. Not only is Jephthah illegitimate, his mother is a prostitute. Yet again, it seems that God has chosen against the popular narrative and that being a good, law-abiding citizen isn't the only resume needed to fight God's battles. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening? Thank you. Thank you.